0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Topo Athletic. Topo Athletic is a gimmick-free athletic footwear company delivering solutions for healthier, more natural movement patterns. Topo Athletic makes shoes for running, fitness, and recovery, all featuring the roomy toe box and iconic fit. Get 10% off your first pair by using promo code manliness at topoathletic.com or go to topoathletic.com slash manliness. Do your body a favor and visit Topo Athletic to join thousands of people who have done their research. That's topoathletic.com slash manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. And There's no doubt that luck plays a role in how successful we are in life, but the more we believe in luck, the less motivated we feel to proactively go after our goals. So how do we navigate this paradox around luck? Acknowledging the influence of chance, but not letting it demoralize us. I guess they argue that the answer lies in seeing life more like playing a game of poker than pulling the handle of a slot machine. Her name is Carla Starr. She's the author of Can You Learn to Be Lucky? Why Some People Seem to Win More Often Than Others. Today on the show, Carla argues that no matter what hand you're dealt in life, there are still many things you have control over that you can influence to make your own luck. We talk about how the things that come down to chance, like the timing of a job interview, how physically attractive you are, and whether you have more or less resilient genes can be influenced or counteracted by our own proactive behaviors so that more opportunities in life fall our way. After the show's over. Check out our show notes at aom.is lucky. Carla Starr. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you wrote a book, Can You Learn to Be More Lucky? I'm curious, what got you thinking about luck? Was there an event in your life where you're like, I need to look more into this?
1: Yes, it was 10 years ago. I was living in Buenos Aires for a few years and then I moved back to the States, Portland, Oregon, right around the height of the Great Recession. And it just seemed like there was so much randomness and chaos (laughs) everywhere around me. Like, you know, who was unemployed, what was going on. So I just wanted to study the one underlying thing that would help me improve as many aspects of my life and help me kind of
0: wrap my head around what was going on. So when you talk about luck, how do you, how are you defining luck in your book?
1: People say that something is due to luck when we say that it's caused by something that's external, unpredictable, or outside of our control. So this might be the case. Maybe we lost the game because the ref made a bad call or we didn't get a part because the director didn't like our shirt. But the problem is that people usually make this shift from, I can do something about this to, oh, it's out of my hands way too early. And this is partly because our brains are fundamentally lazy, right? We're always looking for a shortcut and it's easier to just change our goal and say, oh, that's good enough than it is to try harder. But this is also really to save our ego. So if we think that we lost the game because of this bad call, we can still tell ourselves like, no, we're really better. It was just, that's a bad thing that happened. So in other words, when people start blaming luck, they're making this shift from, you know, I can do something. This is an internal cause to an external cause, which means that they're giving up personal responsibility and really making an excuse. So overall, while it does make sense to say that luck exists, the more often we blame it, the less motivated we are to examine our contribution our, our part in how things happened. And overall, that leads to worse outcomes takes more energy to see your part and change, but there's always something you can do.
0: So when you say, can we learn to be lucky? What does that mean? So if, they're at, if these things are outside of control, do we have more control than we think we do?
1: Absolutely. I think that's, I mean, that's one of the huge things. Um, like one of the huge themes in the book is that people's just their overall like life goals and the way that we manage to accomplish our things that we set out to do. Um, there's pretty much a direct correlation between how much control we think we have and whether or not people actually accomplish their objectives. And part of that is because the whole idea of thinking we can control things, like, you know, we become more likely to persist. We become more likely to, you know, look at our part in things. And, you know, there's always something we can do, even if it's just trying again. So I think the other part of it is that luck is essentially just when everything goes right. I think that people underlook this idea because, you know, For the most part, things go pretty well. We don't always appreciate that. So it's also just kind of being able to capitalize on like just the randomness and be open to things. So there are a lot of different ways to conceptualize it, which is one of the reasons it can be a little tricky. But overall, you know, knowing that we can control things or knowing that, you know, there's something we can do about it. That's really adaptive because the second that we think something is uncontrollable, that actually makes it stressful and that actually reduces our motivation to even work on
0: something. So the idea is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If if you think things are going to go your way and you take action to make things go your way, things that you otherwise would have attributed to luck if things didn't go your way, you say, well, no, I can actually do this and I actually can influence that more than I than most people think.
1: Yes, 100%. There's this, another theme in the book is this idea of positive illusions. So people think like cognitive biases are all bad. You know, they're all just these weird shortcuts that our brain takes, but there's actually one family of cognitive biases that's completely adaptive and that's called positive illusions. So that's things like optimism and confidence. And these are all completely adaptive and lead to better life outcomes to the extent that they promote goal-directed action. So if you think I can, you know, work really hard and make my dream come true, then guess what? You're going to work hard and your dreams are more le- likely to come true.
0: And I think another thing we'll we'll delve deeper in here when we talk about specific things that you can do to, you know, get more lucky or get luckier is that there are things that people would otherwise attribute to luck or are actually attributable to luck, right? Like timing or things like that. But like you show ways that You can influence that in your direction.
1: Right. Right. So like timing, you know, that's something that, you know, generally is out of our control. But I think once you kind of look at the other side of the coin and you look at people's decision making process and you kind of understand, like, you know, why it is that they're more likely to, you know, to do something at a certain time. I think that can just, you know, really help us understand like the mechanisms and that can, you know, help us hack it.
0: Yeah. I think what you're trying to do is increase. So like, there's always a continuum of like skill and luck or randomness. What you're trying to do is increase that, the, the luck or the, the, you're trying to increase the skill part of it, right. And reduce luck.
1: Yes. 100%. Like I have this spectrum that I use when I give talks sometimes and, you know, people look at, you know, think of luck, they might just think of like, oh, it's a slot machine, right? Like that's kind of what life is. Like you just go up to it and you press a little button and like, you know, whatever happens, happens. And you know, really a much better metaphor for life or all these things is like poker. Like you don't necessarily have control over the cards that you were dealt. However, you know, poker, like there are skills that you can learn and become a better poker player. So regardless of the hand you were actually dealt, we can learn how to play it better.
0: Right. And so this is what this book kind of gets at. it's, It's recognizing that luck does play a role, but there are places or things we can do where we can influence things a bit more. So let's get into the specifics. I thought it was really interesting. Let's talk about some of the specificness of that. So let's talk about, well, first this, before we get into specific, like what do you think is the overarching principle of all these ideas you highlight in the book where we can tilt luck more into our favor?
1: I think negative unpredictable things or random things have a predictably self-defeating influence on our behavior. So pretty much the brain is lazy, we are lazy, we are, you know, always motivated to do less whenever we can. So if we think that it's not worth it to try a little harder, we won't try a little harder, and then we prove ourselves right. So overall I think, you know, motivate motivation, motivation to persist, motivation to get better, you know, confidence, like social skills, like pretty much is entirely contingent on motivation.
0: So let's talk about uh, how timing can influence the outcomes of, you know, whether we get a job, whether we win win a contest, like take like a job. We think, well, I got the job because I had the resume. I impressed the people in the interview. I've got the skills, but you highlight research that sometimes that's not the case. Just sometimes you get the job because you showed up at a certain time during the day when they were doing interviews. 100%
1: it could be the time of day you showed up at it could be you know oh you happen to wear a green tie you know and the person who had this job that you're interviewing for used to wear green ties all the time and he was kind of a jerk you know so you subconsciously remind the interviewer of that person so there are all these like very small things that can influence your chances of success in one way or another that have absolutely nothing to do with your merit as an applicant
0: well, and I, you've also highlighted a lot of research showing that, you know, you, did, you talked about the Westminster Dog Show as an example, or, or ta- even a tattoo contest. And what you found was, or what the researchers have found, is that the people who last in the contest, you know, to be judged, they typically win. Like, what's going on there? Why do those people typically win?
1: So if you think about what happens when we look at, say, a series of things over the course of the night, if you're looking at, like, an Olympic contest, the first thing you see What you're really doing is you're grading those against the ideals that are in your head. You know, you're kind of going to be a little more critical of them and you're always going to leave a little room at the top because you never really know what else is going to go there. However, what happens as you go along and as you see more performances or more tattoos, the context in which you are evaluating things shifts. So, what you're doing as you go along further the night is you're not comparing them to the ideals in your head, but you're comparing them implicitly even though you don't realize this you're comparing them to the other things you've already seen so by the time you get to the last you know tattoo or song or whatever you're able to point out the unique qualities that that thing has that nothing else you know you've seen before has and then you're also able to just say like wow this is the best you know that was the best jump we've seen throughout the night whereas the first performance you saw, you were not able to say, wow, this is the only performance we will see where this person executed that jump perfectly.
0: No. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And the other thing going to, you know, going for you, if you go last is like, they remember you more because you're the last thing they saw.
1: Absolutely. So they mistake the vividness of their memory as a sort of, you know, idea of like the quality of how, you know, how good it was. Right. So you think, oh, well, if it was really good, it would be you know really memorable. It would be really vivid when actually it's just, timing and the recency effect.
0: So in the, the case of something like a job interview, luck might determine when you have the interview. So the, the timing component is out of your hands. Despite that, what can you do to help influence the outcome?
1: Well, one thing I think is um, is really robust is to just try to remind other people of the ways that you remind or the things that you have in common with other people who have succeeded in that position beforehand. You know, so you kind of what you want to do is you want to make it as easy as possible for other people to see you in that position, regardless of where you go.
0: Gotcha. So yeah, and so if you don't, if you can't influence whether you're, you know, the first or the last one to go, if you're the first one, you try to be as memorable as possible by doing something like you just said, or even just yeah, being memorable.
1: Right. And I think also, you know, the timing throughout the day can be kind of tricky because you might have your interview, you know, right at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day. However once it really depends on when that person has decided and we're not always privy to that information. You know, they might decide, you know, at the end of the day on Tuesday. So then, you know, it doesn't matter when you go on Wednesday they've already kind of made up their mind.
0: So yeah. And in that case, you know, so I think this is useful to know because you might have all the credentials, you might have what it takes to do the job. You don't get it. And it might not because, it might just because you just, you interviewed at the wrong time and that's it. And you shouldn't feel, get too down on yourself.
1: Absolutely. And I hear this from people all the time, you know, oh, I really wanted to switch careers and, you know, get into this line of work, but I applied and they didn't take me, you know, but that is one data point. And I can say, you know, after researching all these things for 10 years, like just fundamentally, this book has made me so much more resilient and just so much more optimistic because when you realize like how obscure or how random some of these, the things that influence people's decision-making process can be, you will realize like, no, it's not always about you.
0: So let's talk about more into this, this decision-making process that, you know, we think is luck but we can actually influence it a bit so when we go to a job interview or we you know apply for a job we think the decision maker is being super rational they're looking right at the our credentials and they're making this analytical choice because they say well we need xx for the job and this person has XX, so we're going to hire them. But you make the case that no, that's not how we really make decisions. Humans often make decisions in their gut first, and then after the fact, they come up with the the rational reasons. Well, I, I, I remember talking to Michael Maasenbaum. He wrote the book about success and luck and talent and luck, and he gave this example that going in place for it. in his in his real life example was he went to go in interview for this job. There's a lot of competition. And he happened to see that the interviewer had like a a Washington Redskins trash can. Mm -hmm. And he just said, oh, I love the Washington Redskins too. And they had this talk about Washington Redskins and like, like nothing came up about his credentials, but he still got the job. And it was just one of those cases, like he lucked out. (laughs) This guy was also a Washington Redskins fan and he got the job because of it.
1: Oh yeah, that happens all
0: the time. Well, so what do you do if you're applying for a job and you you know this is happening that people are making decisions with their gut first because they they might see you and they like okay like you said they remind you remind that person of like their ex or their crazy uncle and immediately they're like no that's this guy we're not hiring this guy like what can you do knowing that that's happening to kind of tilt luck more towards your favor.
1: So, I think it's important to remember that it's fundamentally this process of us gathering information and then sort of like weighing the costs and benefits of the pros and cons. So it's really important to remember that the first piece of information or the initial pieces of information that people get about you are the most informative, and they kind of end up skewing how people filter the rest of the information they get about you. And that is why it is so so much easier to get a job through connections because then it's, oh, well, you know, Dan recommended this person, therefore, you know, Dan's a good guy. Therefore, we're going to look at the rest of this person's application or resume through that positive lens. Or, oh, this person came recommended to us through this agency or through this, you know, common LinkedIn connection. Or, oh, we saw this person, you know, this one project that they did that really stood out. So they're going to look at everything else in a really positive light.
0: All right. So build that network up.
1: Build that network. Yeah. It's huge. And then also just, you know, whatever you can do to not just be one in the pile.
0: Right. Well, another thing that can influence whether, I mean, it's sort of, this, sort of a continuation of what we've just been talking about. is like, so if someone just likes you, they're more likely to you know, pick you for a job, accept your pitch, go on a date with you. But what's interesting, you highlight research that sometimes what causes people to like us is that they just see us a lot. And it's not that, for, I mean, that first impression has a big sway, uh, can, can influence things for a long term. But it, over time, if that person sees you over and over again, they start liking you and they're more willing to go with you if they have to make a decision that involves you.
1: Absolutely. So it's called the mere exposure effect. So the whole idea is that mere exposure or simple exposure can make us like somebody more over time because we get a chance to constantly see that person. And then it's just essentially a learning process. We're, We're learning to associate this one person with nothing bad happening. So in evolution, it's this idea that whatever is familiar hasn't eaten you yet. So the more you see somebody, the more safe they appear. The less risky they appear. And then also you just have more opportunities to collect information and find, you know, good information about somebody. But this is also really, it's a good example of why it's so important why first impressions are so key, because if the first impression that someone gets about you or the first interaction that someone has with you is negative, then what are they going to do? Well, they're just going to assume, wow, this person is a jerk. And then they're going to filter you and the rest of your actions through that lens. So usually like seeing someone over and over, it usually is positive because, you know, we repeat actions or repeat interactions if they are positive and work, pretty much for the most part, like fundamentally motivated to maintain good relationships with the people we see.
0: And does this like, so this is a proximity effect. Does it have to be like, you have to be physical, physically close, like in like the same, like see this person physically, like meet space, we'll call it for this effect to happen. Or can this happen online as well?
1: Well, it's definitely physically is just, it's safer because we get context, you know, things are interactive, you know, kind of, are more motivated to have like positive impressions in person. Whereas if somebody just sees you online, you know, I think social media is it's especially really kind of dangerous for this because people are, we're always just putting up these, you know, very filtered kind of curated impressions of ourselves. So there's this whole idea of the ideal self, whereas we'll like people and we're even willing to like people if we think they're maybe a little better than us. But if we feel that they're kind of like they've exceeded that, you know, maybe if they're like showboating or something, that's when jealousy can get involved. And I think that's one of the reasons why social media can be so tricky because we don't really see the whole, the nuance or the context, you know, we don't realize like, oh, this is just this, you know, this one awesome moment in this person's month and we should be happy for them that they are on this awesome trip because, you know, other awful things happen to them.
0: Right. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. It's time we treat ourselves to higher quality underwear. Underwear that feels good, provides support, and leaves us feeling fresh. That's what Saks Underwear is all about. It's the only men's underwear specifically designed with our anatomy in mind. Saks Underwear's patented ballpark pouch is a game changer. Got these internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place. No more sticking, no more chafing. It's awesome. Plus, they've got super soft, moisture-wicking fabrics that let you breathe down there. and even repels BO. I've been trying out the Kinetic Boxer Brief. It's a great one, especially during those hot, humid Oklahoma summers down in the garage gym. The ballpark pouch works like a charm, keeps everything separate. The fabric, no BO down there. Super cool, moisture-wicking. It's awesome. If you'd like to try this out, I've got a discount for you. You get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use my promo code AOM at checkout. So order a few pairs of Sacks now with this great offer. Go to saxunderwear.com. That's Sacks with two X is S-A-X-X-Underwear.com. Use promo code AOM at checkout. You're gonna get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, one more time, Saxunderwear.com, promo code AOM. Also by Shaper. So we've had a lot of guests on the podcast talking about networking. And one thing that's always stuck out to me that they said is, is our weak ties that usually help us advance in our career. And weak ties are not our close friends or family members. These are people we hardly know. It could be acquaintances, friends of friends. So if you're looking to increase the number of weak ties in your network, you check out Shaper. Whether you're looking for investment investors investors, a co-founder, a new job opportunity, or just inspiring conversations, Shaper can connect you to professionals who truly want to share tips and help. Here's how it works. You sign up. You say what you're looking for. If you're looking for investors, a new job opportunity, or just someone to talk to about business, you do that. And then each day, Shaper is going to suggest 15 people with similar goals and interests for you to meet. And all you have to do is you take a few minutes to swipe through your daily profiles. If you find someone who's a match, set up a coffee with them, and that's it. So if you're professional, the Shaper app should be installed on your phone. So go download the app today. It's the Shaper app. That's S-H-A-P-R. Or check out Shaper online at shaper.co. That's Shaper, S-H-A-P-R dot C-O, not dot To learn more about Shaper, download the app, and improve the way you network. And now back to the show. Um, so what can we do, like knowing that, okay, if we... if the mere exposure effect uh, plays a role in whether people like us or not. Like what can we do? Say if you're looking for a job or, I mean, this could like also work in your romantic life as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think this is, so this is actually one of the interesting things that I've you know also uncovered in the research is I think that people really overemphasize the impact of luck or the impact of these one, you know, this one interaction or this one thing that led to this host of other things and really like personality traits or, character strengths that we can develop are really predictive of overall life outcomes, because it's not just that one thing. It's, oh, this person, you know, made a hundred contacts and it happened to be that one that ended up paying off, you know, or, oh, this person is involved in that many social groups and they have this large of a social network, you know, and that is how they were able to like, you know, finally meet the person who ended up, you know, becoming their significant other.
0: All right. So yeah, the takeaway, get out there, mix it up with people in real, real life.
1: Yeah. And that was actually this one thing that this relationship researcher told me, he said that, you know, people, you know, they think about like online dating and it's, it's really just a numbers game and (laughs) that can make people become, you know, a little jaded. And when in fact, most successful long term relationships happen between people who have already known each other for a long time.
0: Yeah, we had him on the podcast. He talked about it, his research. That was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like most people who they end up with, uh, they, who they end up marrying or whatever, like they worked with them or they were a friend for years, as opposed to they just found each other on Tinder or whatever.
1: Yes, by far. Absolutely. You get, you know, it's the whole fact finding thing. You just are able to collect more information about the person and then. You know, it's just, you get to know somebody before you decide should you be in a relationship with them or not, as opposed to just, you know, is their face cute and that, uh, you know, and physical appearance, you know, it is important to be attracted to somebody, but there's this huge personality effect on how attractive we find somebody. So over time, as you get to know somebody, you know. Personality is definitely what can change a seven to a 10 or a seven to a three.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, you highlight he did some He re- talked about research where you know they they had students in a classroom rate each other, like physical and like attractiveness at the beginning of the semester. And you know, the 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 ratings were what you'd expect. Like, you know, the objectively attractive people were nines and tens or whatever. But at the end of the year, the end of the semester, they did the the rating again. And who was ranked, you know, the most physically, it was like all over the place. There was like no, because people got to know each other and some personalities clicked and they found that personality more attractive and that influenced, you know, they, they, they brought that in as a factor into the physical attractiveness.
1: Absolutely. So it's just kind of like your, you know, is this person a 10 or not? Well, that depends on how much information you have about them. So when you first meet somebody the only information you have about them is their physical appearance. But when you kind of get to know and see somebody and all their complexity, you know, that one number actually has so many more variables behind it.
0: Well, let's, let's kind of continue that thread of physical attractiveness. Cause you, you talk about this in the research that you know, people who are physically attractive tend to have a pretty great life. <laughs> so I mean, talk about like, so it's not only just being physically attractive and like people see you and they like you cause you're physically attractive, but like it also sort of like greases the wheels for pretty much the rest of their life and all facets of their life. Talk about that a little bit. I,
1: Honestly, I ended up just researching this for months and months because I was like, what? This really can't happen. This can't be true. But life is so much easier for physically attractive people on so many aspects. Like, you know, when they get arrested or when they're on trial, they're more likely to be found not guilty. They're more likely to be given lighter sentences. And the only case that they're actually penalized in the legal system is when the juries figure that they use their appearance as a weapon. So it's in in cases of like fraud, for example, but just fundamentally, you know, physically attractive people have better genes. So we're more like just from an evolutionary standpoint, we're more motivated to bond with them. You know, they seem to be like free of pathogens and that influences like how much money we give them in these economic trust games that influences just social interactions in general Because, you know, just imagine like everybody is always coming up to you and they're always being super nice to you. And so you just, over time, you feel like you have a larger sense of social support and your self-esteem is kind of, you know, tends to be higher and you just really get graded on a curve for everything for your entire life. I mean, even, you know, students grade, or teachers give students higher grades on essays when they are attractive students. So it's all these things that you would not really even expect or you know, like, why would a teacher give a cute kid a higher grade? That kind of seems weird, but that actually happens.
0: No, I thought the the really interesting point that I didn't never thought about is if you're physically attractive, as you said, people just are nice to you. They're, they're more willing to cut you a break and whatever, but like that will influence how you interact with the world. You go out in the world with this, like, sort of optimistic bias that the, you know, this person's a friend, he's going to be a friend of mine. I don't, the, the universe is going to you know work for me as opposed to if you didn't have that going for you, where you have to like, you're always looking for threats and people like treating you like garbage. Like if you have that, at, if you've lived with that your entire life, like that can be a big boon to you.
1: Oh, it's huge. Like I, I feel like, you know, just personally, the more physically attractive people I know are also the ones who, you know, they're, they take more risks. They'll, you know, go on these trips they'll move somewhere and they'll pursue their dreams why because they know that if they kind of get you know they get all this stuff together and they pack up and they move to the other side of the country it'll be that much easier for them to make friends and have a new social group and so it's just kind of like wherever they go like you know there's going to be a safety net for them and they just have that much more of a, a robust sense of that you know as opposed to people who are you know they're in their hometown they're like oh you know what why bother it's just that much harder and it's it's so it's one of those things it's you know they're lucky you know physically attractive people are lucky because they get you know this good good social stuff coming to them all the time however what that does is that ends up influencing what they bring to the table right so they're going to be a little friendlier they're going to be a little outgoing so that is what they're bringing to the table however they're bringing that to the table because of this like more positive history of experiences
0: right so physical attractiveness that's like pure randomness right that's just genes your whether you the parents you had and how the genes interacted with each other to make you so like what do you do like if you got the short end of the physical attractiveness stick
1: well interestingly enough I'm glad you brought this up Fifty percent of how we tend to rate other people in physical attractiveness is with this component called grooming. So I don't know if you've ever like googled, googled or looked up, um, you know, oh, if celebrities were like us, and they have these pictures of um, things like Beyonce and Jay Z, and they're wearing these like just hideous clothes, and they're a little bit chubby, and their hair is kind of gross. You know, it's kind of like what you know, or like what Britney Spears or you know Cameron Diaz would look like if they were in the Midwest. And it is really funny. It's like, oh, they have the same face, but it's just the rest of them. You know, it's not just their face, but it's like what they're doing with the rest of it. So like, are they in good shape? What kind of clothes are they wearing? What what is their hair like? Are they well-groomed? So there is a lot you can do with that. And I think that's another one of those things where it's kind of like the Matthew effect, like the rich get richer. I think that people who have a more positive history of being told like, oh, you're attractive. They're more willing to kind of make the most of what they have. Whereas other people who maybe are a little more self-conscious about their appearance figure like, Oh, why bother? You know? So they won't go to the gym. They won't, you know, put any thought into what they're wearing and people, you know, whether or not we'd like to admit it, we're all kind of shallow and we're all making these snap
0: decisions about other people. So yeah, easy. Just shower, shave, go to the, go to the gym. Like that's stuff you can do. That's
1: stuff you can do. Absolutely. And I think, so I, I, <laughs> I went shopping with a, a personal stylist and I spent some time with this, this woman who's like a, you know, social coach. And so I actually started paying a little more attention to my clothes and my parents. And I am absolutely, I continue to be dumbfounded and how much easier that makes social interactions and how much better people treat me. I think like it's, if you're looking for like, you know, quick and easy way to just make your life better, like by far that has the best ratio of cost and benefits of anything I've done
0: so another aspect of whether people get more lucky in life is if they just have this attitude that things are going to work their way, they have confidence. And a lot of people think that, you know, you either have confidence or you don't, you're born with it or you're not, but you, you highlight research. No, that's not the case. You can actually develop your confidence.
1: Oh, absolutely. You can develop your confidence in any aspect of your life. I think confidence is really us knowing that, you know what, things will be okay. If, if they don't work out, things not go to hell, in a handbasket. And I think it's a lot of it has to do with attention. So it's just how much attention do we give the potential rewards or how much attention do we pay to our, our mistakes? So I notice now, like, you know, people who are really confident, someone who's really confident in that, say, someone who's kind of anxious or insecure, they can go and do the same thing, right? So say maybe they'll go up to someone they're attracted to and they'll, you know, ask them on a date, you know, and the person who is kind of more confident, they'll be like, oh, if you say no, like, okay, you know, thanks, but they won't crumble. You know, they won't kind of ruminate. They won't obsess over it. They will realize that that is not in any sort of like objective statement about their self-worth Whereas someone who's kind of insecure, they might ruminate and get down on it and then like obsess over that negative thing forever.
0: So a confident person has like that approach attitude towards rewards, whereas like unconfident, they have like a avoidance. Like they're uh, unconfident people. They, they fear the downsides more than they fear then they are going after the rewards. Whereas confident people focus more on the rewards.
1: Right. So less confident people, they have a a more active, what is called a behavioral inhibition system, which is like essentially just our brain kind of putting the brakes on our behavior. Whereas confident people, you know, they're all about like approaching rewards and like not really letting other things get in their way. And so often if you look at it, it really is just us getting in our own way. You know, it's our, our attitude or our anxieties or our obsession over oh, this bad thing is going to happen and we're so sure of it.
0: No, but that, that's another place where luck does play a role a little bit is our temperament is also determined by genetics, often case you know, neurotic people are neurotic often because they got neurotic parents and neurotic grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, but even though that's the case, there's still wiggle room for you to, to shape that though.
1: Absolutely, I think that's like one of the really cool things, you know, that I studied is that, you know, whenever we're talking about like, oh, is it is it genes or is it something that we can learn, you know, and those questions, the answer is really both, you know, it's always both. So it's maybe you do have like the genes that make you, you know, learn from mistakes more easily than rewards, which is actually you know a potential thing because of all these different um, variabilities in our dopamine receptors. But it really is just attention and how much we, attention we pay to, to things. So people who might have really anxious or neurotic parents, they might have that those bad genes that, you know, make their dopamine receptors more likely to learn from mistakes. But then they also end up paying attention to those more. So it is possible, absolutely, to have like this bad, you know, mix of genes. But then over time, just train yourself, you know, through like meditation or mindfulness or just um, all these little things you can do. These like self-affirmation studies. Just focus on the good things and let yourself be guided by the rewards instead of just fearful of the potential bad things.
0: So you also talk about Olympic athletes and we usually hold these guys up as like paragons of hard work. It wasn't luck at all, but you highlight research. No, oftentimes luck plays a big role in first that these guys became Olympic athletes and then second that they they you know got the gold medal instead of the, the silver medal. Talk about that.
1: So I use Olympic athletes and expertise as sort of this example of as we were saying before it's like in order to reach that huge kind of success you know whether it's like you know for a startup or a musician or something those like super great heights it's not just a matter of fact of like one thing going right it's that absolutely every single thing has to go right so for olympic athletes for example if you look at them they happen to be people who fell in love with the sport that they happen to be genetically suited to when they were young enough and then they got great coaching So that by the time they, you know, reached their physiological peak in their early twenties, their skill set was also, you know, world class. Um, you know, and then along the way, they were just mentally tough and they really believed in their ability to continue getting better. You know, they have no serious setbacks or illnesses or injuries. And then also, you know, when you look at game day, you know, as we were saying before, the later on you go during the day, like the more likely you are to be graded higher, you know, so even on game day timing can play a huge role and then on game day also because you're also dealing with these like uh, the effects or the the difference between like silver and gold medal can just be you know such a fraction of a second so everything on game day also has to go perfectly as well So like absolutely every single thing i think of it as like this race and there are all these different hurdles so it's like you have to clear every single hurdle and not all of them are entirely up like to you.
0: No, right. So but like, what can we take away from these guys, like this average Joes, right, who want to tap into that same thing, that sort of luck thread that these guys tapped into? What can we learn from them?
1: Well, I think part of it is, honestly, like just hanging out with more positive people. Because I was actually just listening to the, this interview I did with the sociologist who studied coaching and athletes at all different levels. And he said that so much of it comes out of these group settings, right? Like people, they don't just kind of magically think like, oh, I'm going to be an Olympic athlete. It's that they hang out with other people who are really positive and just inspire them to work harder instead of, you know, these Olympic athletes, you know, most likely their best friends are not the guys who are saying like, oh God, you're going to the gym. Come on, just, you know, come over, let's play a game. So one of it is group settings and just making sure you, you know, hang out with people that you admire and want to be like, and then also just this steadfast belief in your ability to just get better, just get a little bit better and have the mental resourcefulness to believe that, no, you can do this. Like, you know, whatever is in your control, you can kind of make that happen. You know, I have this poster on my wall, my office, I'm looking at right now, it says, you can have results or excuses, but not both. (laughs) And that is entirely true. I think the more excuses you make, like, oh, I can't do this, the more you just set yourself up for failure or for just not getting better. And I always think like, you know what, however hard I think I have it, there's someone out there who has had it even harder and they've gone even further than me.
0: No, for sure. And I think another takeaway I got from it as well is like, find the thing Ah, that suits you, right?
1: Exactly. That was one of the things... Glad to brought that up. That's pretty much the whole point of the chapter. Olympic athletes are also—they just have had the luck of finding something that they genuinely love. So I think when you find something that you genuinely love, and then you focus on how good it feels to get better, I think people often mistake, you know, their insane dedications, like, oh, how can they do that to themselves, ten hours a day? But actually, you know, in talking to them, they it does not feel like work to them at all, and that is so important because it, number one, it decreases people's likelihood of burning out because they just genuinely love it. And then, you know, I had a story in there about like Tony Hawk, you know, after he and like his friend won some you know, major skateboarding competition, you know, they celebrated for a little bit, but then like, you know, half an hour later they were out in the back practicing new moves because they just, they loved it so much. That is something that they would have done in their free time anyways, because they loved it so much. And then when you look at just the cumulative effect of all that practice, that adds up so much.
0: No, it does. And I think this opens up the idea, I think we have in America with this idea, like never quit and you keep going. And you, even if it's, it's hard, but like might the, the best thing to do might be quit what you're doing. Cause it's just not suited for you and find that thing that is suited for you.
1: Yeah. I think that's one of the really tricky things because, you know, I'm studying like all these little <sighs> the impact of say like good coaching or, you know, how much people improve over time, you know, people can be light bloomers, you know, maybe i don't know find their groove, you know, later on. However, you don't really know that. So there's no, it's really tricky because there's no like good rule of thumb for like, should you keep doing this thing? Are you going to get really good? Or should you just quit? But I think a lot of it does just have to do with like, what do you really love? I guess it depends. You know, what do you really love? What doesn't feel like work, and then also like what do you maybe realistically have a better chance of succeeding in? So those are kind of a tricky, tricky fields to negotiate. But I think it's you know somewhere between those two.
0: Right. No. Yeah. That, that takes some practical wisdom to figure out. Mm-hmm. So another thing too that can increase our luck is just simply thinking that luck is on our side. Did you find any research that talked about that idea?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of awesome research in like you know, performance psychology. You know, people who, you know, they have positive expectations or, you know, enhanced expectancies about the future, they end up just doing better, like across the board. There's, you know, one study, people who had some sort of superstitious token, when they took a test, they actually ended up performing better because they were less anxious, they were more confident. So people who or even people who are religious and pray, and then they believe like God is on their side. They also have more confidence and they're able to muster more energy. And, you know, they they genuinely believe that they can do the thing. So they're actually more likely to go out and do the thing. And I think that people don't realize how it's one of those things that's it's very simple. It's not easy,
0: but it's very simple. Yeah, I've got my lucky tokens that I've got, my lucky pair of socks.
1: Yeah, and I know there are some coaches who think like, oh, that's stupid. You should be able to, you know, Do that all on your own, but I feel like that's ridiculous. Because if it helps you, why not? You know, why not use that?
0: No, for sure. Yeah, we had an author on a few weeks ago talking about sports recovery and all these gizmos that have come out in the last few years, like cryotherapy and massage rollers, and basically the research says it doesn't really do much, but like people think it does, and it so that as as a result, it helps them. It's like the placebo effect, and like she was saying that's fine. Like, that's okay. If, the, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if going in, if sitting in cryo spa, you know, makes you feel good and helps you recover, like makes you feel like you're recovering and helps you perform better. Do it.
1: Absolutely. 100%. Like Torbaker, he had this awesome thing on like expectancies. And we were talking about this for a very long time. It's like, you know what? Like those are real effects. So why would you deny yourself the benefit of those effects? It makes, yeah. So if you think you're being really logical? Like, no, it's, it's very, you know, stupid. I'm too, you know, scientifically minded to, you know, bring that little rabbit's foot or that little thing that won't help me. But if it it would help you, it's actually like more illogical to not make use of that.
0: Right. So what do you, what is all this, you mentioned it earlier, but how's all this research about, you know, increasing our luck, which is basically trying to, you know, take into account these human factors that often sway whether something happens to us or not and influencing them. But like, how's this research influenced you when things don't go your way, when you're unlucky?
1: This sounds so cheesy. And it's one of those things that I've seen so many times, like, you know, cliche posters or like what your grandmother would say, but it actually ends up having really, you know, scientifically valid background is, you know, use failure as a learning experience. And that is it. And I think I used to think of, you know, any kind of failure or setback as just this overall, you know, marker of my worth or my overall ability. But I think if you can kind of remove yourself and look at the situation objectively and look at your part in things and just kind of use that as information to just keep going forward or learn and maybe change your strategy or routine a little bit and go on like that is the most beneficial most beneficial reaction to have even if that whole like learning strategy is just you know what i'm gonna persist i'm gonna you know do this one more time because it really is you know how many times are you gonna get up right to say like what a master is somebody who is failed more times than the novices even tried.
0: Right. And also just don't take it personally. It's like, well, you know, had nothing to do with me. The guy saw me and reminded me, that I reminded him of his crazy uncle. That's why I didn't get the job.
1: Absolutely. Like, yeah, it had nothing to do with me, but also like, however, I can like maximize my desirability as a candidate, you know? However what this guy says that doesn't mean I'm bad
0: right so is that that luck paradox so you're like you know believing in luck can un- unmotivate you really, the, the the upside of not believing in luck is it motivates you right right the, you you have you have you have a sense of control but the upside of also like also understanding that luck plays a role is like when things don't go your way you can be like okay I did everything I could this is a learning point I'm gonna keep moving forward despite that
1: yes absolutely it is it's that luck paradox Right. So it's like, it doesn't have anything to do with you because it might've been the shirt you were wearing. However, right. What do you bring to the table? You can learn and be persistent and keep going.
0: Well, Carla, it's been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Thank you so much for having me. They can go to my website. It's kstar.com. It's K-S-T-A-R-R.com.
0: Awesome. Well, Carla Starr, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: My guest today was Carla Starr. She is the author of the book, Can You Learn to Be Lucky? It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work and the book at her website, KSTAR. That's star with two R's. It's kstar.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is lucky. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into the topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the One Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can see our podcast archives. We've got over 480 there. Also, the thousands of articles we have there about personal finances, career, physical fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the One Podcast, but put what you've heard into to action